Because God's working on so many fronts. You know, God doesn't just have one purpose and one person that he's raising up to do something. So we've been looking at Cyrus in chapter 41, but 42, we're going to jump ahead. So chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Meek. Meek. What does he not do? 
interests. He doesn't, uh, doesn't draw attention to himself. Isn't that so different from the way worldly rulers exercise their authority? He establishes his power in calmness, humility, simplicity. He rejects sensationalism and self-advertisement and show and you know, look at Jesus. I mean, the whole his whole life was quiet. Just what would you have done as God if you were going to come into the world as a man? What kind of grand entrance would you have? What kind of drum? What kind of attention would you draw to yourself? Just how would you choose to come into the world? Well, how did he choose to come into the world? Born. A baby! A little bitty baby. Born where? Bethlehem. And where in Bethlehem? Manger, the barn. And feeding trough in the room of the hotel. That's the way you choose to be born? To a couple who were uh, prince and princess, right? No. To a lowly couple who actually raised him up in Galilee, up in Nazareth. He did not draw attention to himself and promote himself and elevate himself in all the ways that we've come to expect. Now, how can you do that? It's exactly what we said a little while ago. I don't know who's really good in things these days. But we're a basketball state, so uh, my Michael Jordan illustrations are too uh, old. Who, who's, who's a really outstanding basketball project? LeBron James? James, James or James? <laughs> Not much. Is he good? Update your illustrations. Well, well, if he's that good, would you think that if you were to to take him on, that he would really need to trash talk you and and promote himself and and tell you how great he was? You know, typically, really great athletes don't talk. You know why? They need you. Why talk about it? Well, you can do it. You know, you show it on the court, you don't have to say a word. It'll show. <laughs> I think that's exactly where it's at with Jesus. He didn't have to promote himself. He doesn't have to get, come out with some kind of warm-up band to get the crowd worked up with. You know, he has authenticity. He is absolutely who he is. He will accomplish his work. He doesn't have to brag about it. You take somebody, you take a boss who's constantly flexing his muscle, showing him, I don't mean physically, but, but showing him <laughs> Showing off his authority. You know, telling you, I can, I can do anything I want to do. What do you do about it? He doesn't think he's got that authority. He wouldn't talk about it if he did. You take a, a father or husband who's constantly, you know, trying to, to tell his family, look, I'm in charge of this family. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, if he is, he'll do it. You wouldn't expect that to brag about it. You take Jesus. He has the spirit of him. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't make his voice heard in the street. Because he has true strength. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. I think he's just talking about the gentleness. You know, and you take a bruised reed, just the easiest thing in the world to stand in, too. It's practically not wet. But he nurtures it. He's gentle and tender with it. The, the dimly burning wick, just nothing would snuff it out. But, but he, he gently 
you know, brings it to, to flame more brightly. That, that's, the, that's the gentleness. I'll, I'll pause there. Do you have comments and questions on those first three verses, Douglas? What do you think the purpose of his emphasis on justice is? He mentions it in verse 1, 3, and 4, how he, uh, he'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And uh, he will not be crushed until he, he has established justice. That is exactly his purpose. To bring forth justice. Now, there's probably several things to be said along that line. I mean, he's here to restore God's world to righteousness and truth and to the order that God has had from the very beginning. That's what he came to do. He came to bring justice. He also came to justify us, to make us just and righteous. He came to reveal truth and justice. Uh, you know, the foundation of his government is justice and righteousness. And you see that emphasis also back in Isaiah 11 a lot. In that passage we looked at just a second ago, where he says uh, in verse 5, Righteousness will also be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The belt's what kind of brings everything together. And, and the, the thing that's going to tie it together is righteousness and faithfulness. I mean, more than anything else, this sermon is about right, righteousness, about justice, about truth, about God's will prevailing. And that's exactly what he's going to bring about in the earth. That's the foundation of his throne. Good question. Seth? Uh, application for us, he doesn't need a big triumphal entry into the earth, uh, he certainly doesn't need us to revise and modernize his plan for bringing people to him. He doesn't need big showy services to bring people to Christ. Amen. And he doesn't need us trying to promote ourselves. You know, there's nothing that's more against Jesus' whole life than, than trying to draw attention to ourselves, trying to elevate ourselves, trying to, to uh, kind of get the limelight, make sure people notice us, make sure they look up to us, make sure we do not name dropping. You know, being greatest in the kingdom. Yeah, exactly. We need to follow the servant. And the servant is a servant. There's so much of this for us. In all lives to think about. Chris. Wouldn't justice be the reward and the punishment side? I mean, just the whole thing. So you, you wouldn't necessarily read that as judging the nation's punishment, but justice would be both both ways. It's a pretty broad thing. You can see a lot of different things in that. But yes, I agree. Yeah, well, this passage is quoted in Matthew. Uh, the interesting thing is when, when his popularity was growing, he kind of drifted away from that and went to a, a secluded place because he didn't want too much attention to be on hand. And I just think that's the example. I like the fact in verse 4 that he's determined to do his will. He's not going to be crushed. He's not going to be disheartened. He's going to do whatever he needs to do in order to accomplish the will of God. And that's kind of added to me to have also too. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, in verse 4, I mean, he shows no sign of the weakness that he sympathizes with in others. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. He won't go to pieces in adversity. It's a difficult mission, but he is determined and he will not be turned aside by the pressures that would immobilize other people. He will persevere until he has completed his task. So he is uh, a servant that was chosen by God. He's not boisterous. He's gentle. And he's persevering to establish justice. Tim. I think it's interesting is um, justice for the people reading this is kind of a political thing and uh, you know, really good guys versus bad guys. But justice, like in the context of this, in Matthew, this is going to He's bringing justice into our religious world, really. I mean, the religious world is a mess and cruel and accusing the innocent and things like that. So he's bringing justice with the good guys versus the bad guys within the religious world. And that's just a 
Yeah, a little bit more grovel than that. I mean, he's bringing justice in every sense. He's bringing the world back to the way God wanted it to be. Yes, John. You might have said this already, but in verse 4, about the coastlands, we've also seen that in 41. But what is that? on the coast? Yes, and and almost symbolizes faraway nations. But the reference to him being crushed, you know, it says he will not be disheartened or crushed until he is established with that having, like, uh... That meaning will. He'll be well, like, I mean, like, cause in, like, Isaiah 53, it says he will be crushed for our iniquities. But here I think it's just he will persevere until he is he, He's going to accomplish what he says. Not that then he'll be crushed. I don't think that's the idea. Great. I'm not sure what the Greek is in that, but the... Uh, New King James says he will not fail nor be discouraged. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to persevere. He's going to get the job accomplished. And, you know, I mean, think about the differences between this servant and Cyrus in chapter 41. There are several comparisons between the two. For example, in 41.2, he calls Cyrus in righteousness. And in 42.6, call, I call, have called you in righteousness. Uh, and there are some others as well. But think about the contrasting results. Before Cyrus, the nations tremble. But this servant brings justice to the world. Cyrus drove the nations to further idolatry. This servant brings it closer to God. You know, this servant clearly goes even beyond Cyrus in the mission God has for him. He will call Cyrus in chapter 45 his Messiah, his anointed one. But this anointed one goes beyond Cyrus. Cyrus almost was a foreshadowing of this great anointed one. All right, comments and questions further through verse 4. Yes, Jay. You mentioned this contrast there between servant 41 and 42. Because of those contrasts, is that why we see 42 as talking about someone different than the person 41? Yes, and just the things he's saying about him are so different. Um, You know, it's not, you don't see the picture of somebody having great military success. You see the picture of meekness and humility to accomplish God's purpose of justice. Um, and this picture links with 49, 50, and so forth. There are other servant passages. So I think there's a number of reasons to not identify those two. Anything else? Well, that was... Uh, let's see what I wrote in my notes. That was the Lord speaking about his servant. Now the Lord speaks to this servant. Five to nine. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, and I will also hold you by my by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Alright. The one who's speaking is God the Lord. And, you know, you always have to think about who's doing the talking and what that really means. When this is God the Lord speaking, look at what, he, what he's done in verse 5. kind of a God was he? Yes! And what else? It gave 
creator God. This is the life-giving God. This is, I mean, wow. You hear from a God like this. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I mean, when God, the creator of life-giving God says that, you know he's, he's God enough to do it. And he says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a, as a light to the nations. Jesus blessed his people. He was the very covenant with them. He was the light for the nations. He opened the eyes of the blind. He released the prisoners from the dungeon, from darkness. Now, I don't think he's thinking here about physical blindness and, and being locked up in jail. I think he's talking about being blind to God and being in slavery to sin. And Jesus is the one who throws open those prison doors and releases us from that. That's the mission that God is telling his servant that he's sending him on. It's amazing to see the clarity of God's revelation about his servant 700 years before he came on the scene. Comments through seven. Great. I think the picture of God holding our hand, we've seen that first here in uh, verse uh, 6, I believe it was, and also back in chapter 41, verse 13, you know, it, that, that's, you know, just knowing that God is not only just guiding us where to go, but he's there holding our hand as well, uh, you know, not just saying, okay, come on, follow me, but, you know, actually um, giving us that comfort holding our hands in a wonderful energy. That's powerful. Yes, I agree. <coughs> I'll give you the covenant with the people in verse 6. I would just take that as uh, like, my blood of the covenant. Yeah, and he's sort of the, he is the very connection between God and his people and himself. Now, I'm just going to say, um, I guess just like we should be a model of Jesus, we can easily apply a lot of these things to our lives. Definitely. Other thoughts? Shane? Um, you know, you'd be dangerous in a couple times in this chapter, in 42, 1, and also in 42, 6, referring to the New American Standard Version says the nation, uh, New King James says Gentile. How would it be? I don't know how they saw those. There's plenty in the uh, Old Testament to tell them that. I mean, the very promise to Abraham was so that all the nations of the earth could be blessed. So this is no new teaching, but I don't know what they thought. Now it says in uh, 8 and 9, I am the Lord. You know, the one who's doing this, the one who's raising up the servant is God himself. He is the only God. You know, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God is intolerant and exclusive. That is not popular today in a world that loves the idea of acceptance of all faiths and all belief systems and all that kind of stuff. But God says, I am the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. God is exclusively God. There's no one else like him. And God proves it by having declared the former things that have come to pass and now he declares new things that will come to pass as well. The fact that God has always been able to reveal his purposes gives you confidence that God will do what he says he's going to do now. You know, what would you think if God had been unable to accomplish what he purposed in the past? You know, he told Moses, I'm going to deliver you from, I'm going to deliver my people from Pharaoh. And then he gets down there and Pharaoh's just too much for him. He got the Red Sea and that's nothing you can do. You know, Pharaoh just destroys him. That would kind of shoot your confidence in, in the Lord, wouldn't it? You know? But it never has ever gone like that. 
every single time, God has been able to do exactly what he purposed. And he wasn't throwing himself softballs. I mean, there's a lot of times when God purposed and, and promised to do things that seemed humanly impossible. But they were. But God did Comment some questions through that. You compare that to the idols who couldn't do good or evil or anything, including the past or the future, and God can say, well, look what I did in the past, and then look what I did in the future. Amen. Other thoughts? All right. Um, well, what kind of response? Should there be to this kind of a God and to this kind of a servant? 10 to 13. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages and the cater Let the inhabitants of the sea sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. So, what's the proper response? Sing. Sing. Praise. Sing praise. Sing. What? A new song. A new song. The old ones are not really that good. So. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. <laughs> the old ones are just fine, but why do you need a new song? <laughs> it's a new time. Yeah. I mean, God's done a new thing. You need a new song to praise Him for that. No old song is good enough for these wonderful, amazing, incredible, never-before-seen-or-heard things that God is going to do now. So to match these new, great, marvelous deeds, we need a new song to praise and glorify And who needs to sing it? <laughs> Man, you know, you look at that list in uh, 10, 11, and 12, uh, pretty much that covers it. Uh, from from one corner of the earth to the other, praise God. <coughs> Declare His praise. Now, isn't that a very reasonable conclusion from what we just read? How can you see a God as great as this God if you just read from chapter 40 to right here and you really understand what that's saying. Isn't it reasonable to say, let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. I mean, why? A God like that ought to be praised <coughs> everywhere. And he ought not to be praised apologetically. God ought to be praised with every bit of, of voice and enthusiasm we've got. Why don't we? So. We have so many other things to, to think about. God already knows how great He is. So watch. How is it going to benefit Him in, by me telling you how great He is? I mean, I'm just one voice. What am, what am I? How is God benefited at all by us praising Him? Is God benefited at all by us praising Him? No. Don't think that's what we're for. You know, it's only right to praise Him. Look. Sometimes we care more about the other worms' opinions than we do about God's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't make much sense, does it? You know, we, we, we're not getting distracted with trivialities. I mean... You know, it's like, you know, there's some enormous, spectacular, you know, unbelievable fireworks display. 
And some guy, some guy body is ignoring that to play with his lighter. That's <laughs> like, what? You, know, you got this whole thing erupting in color, and you're fascinated with your little lighter? You know, I mean, how stupid can we be? You know, it just bugs the time out that we get so wrapped up in things that are so empty. We are so passionate about things that are so empty. You know, you want to listen to Christians raise their voice in praise? Where do you need to go? Yeah. Or up here at the basketball game. Yeah. Wow. I mean, even if it's being played on TV and you're watching it and you're living. Isn't that amazing? And then we come to sing a new song of praise to God and we just kind of drone on half asleep. We need to be fired up with this picture. Roger. Yeah, I was thinking the more I look at the greatness of God, the more it compels us to give him our best. How can you give this great God anything more than our best? And I just feel frustrated sometimes when I'm not giving this great God my best. Because how can you deserve anything less than that? Amen. Amen. John. I've often thought of that because I get really into Duke basketball and I'll run around the house and we'll yell and stuff. <laughs> I'm like, why can't I do this at church, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Really 
really simple and, you know, but it's very true. We will talk about the things we want to talk about and we'll focus our time on the things we want to focus our time on. Absolutely. We show where our heart is by what we talk about and by the enthusiasm with, with which we talk about. Chapter 42, verses 14 to 17. I've kept silent for a long time. I've kept still and restrained myself. For like a woman in labor, I will grow. I will go grass and back. I will lay waste the mountains and then the hills and wither all the vegetations. I will make the rivers into coastland and dry up the pound. I will, uh, I will lead the blind by a, way, uh, by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and, uh, and, and rugged places into plains. They are things I will do and I will not leave them undone. They will, they will be turned and be utterly put to shame. Who trust in idols, who seek to molten images, you are our God. Now, these passages are just really amazing, the pictures of God. We really didn't speak specifically about verse 13. But look at verse 13 and verse 14. What do you see in the Lord in verse 13? He's a warrior. He's going out to battle with great power. I mean, that's just really a, a graphic image. And of all things in verse 14, how do you see God? Silent. Uh, yes, he had been silent, and now? Restrained. Like a woman in labor. <laughs> that that probably wasn't the uh, image you had of the Lord before you came uh, in here. From a battling warrior to a birthing woman. What's the point? What, why would he speak of God as being like a woman in labor? Time has come, you can't hold it in any longer. Okay, yes, you can't be silent anymore. It's time to give birth. That's exactly right. I think that's part of it. And what do you see? What's God going to do here? And, and, and more yet, the philosophies and, 
and uh, the traditions of, you know, whatever cultures. I mean, this tells us we need to turn to God. And, and we need to stand against the things that it's popular now to say, well, you know, that's their way. And that's their search for reality and meaning and purpose in their lives. No, it's not. It's empty and false. And there is no deliverance in any God but the Lord. Amen. Comments and questions? I guess I'm not grasping this idea of the woman in labor because it almost seems like he's like not with it and he's just kind of in pain and I don't know I just I don't I don't see the connection. I think the effort that he puts into transforming everything to redeem his people. You take a great God like this, gasping and panting to give birth. He's going to give birth to something quite extraordinary, and that's what you see in verse 15 and 16. And he transforms the whole, you know, nature he, to, to, to redeem his people. He, he'd been silent, looked like he waited a long time. Boy, when the time comes to give birth, he labors to give birth and it, everything changes. I'm sure there's a contrast somewhere between the, the shout the Lord makes here and the lack of noise that the, the, the servant makes in... I don't know that I can say that. I mean, I'm not sure what to say about that other than we've got just two different figures. I mean, yeah, definitely. Verse 13 is a far cry from verse uh, 2. I think it just shows different angles, you know, of the figure. Jesus certainly came in an unassuming way, but he certainly accomplished great victories against his enemies. <laughs> I think maybe one of the reasons we might not shout about these things and be emphatic about telling people is maybe people might look at us as, as you know, uh, trying to exalt ourselves instead of, uh, you know, or tell people about ourselves instead of God. And I think about, you know, um, maybe maybe times that I've seen people like way, uh, you know, uh, just really excited about things and you wonder if that's sincere. You wonder if that's something that uh, is really about God or about them. And something that scares me, honestly. I don't want people to think that I'm excited because I just want to show myself. Um, so does that make sense at all? How do we deal with that? We don't want people to think that we're excited because we just want to show ourselves. I think that's the answer. We need to be sincere. I don't think it matters how people see us. It matters who we are. People will see what they choose to see. They saw some things in Jesus that weren't true at all. Jesus wasn't responsible for what they saw in him. He was responsible for who he was. So sometimes I think we're way too concerned about, well, what kind of effect will this have on people, and how will they come to see me? Well, who cares? That's up to them. We need to be the kind of people we are to trust. You also, though, need to, you have to keep in mind exactly how you are shouting or how you're doing this, because you also don't want to um, do it in a way that specifically distracts people and draws that kind of attention to you rather than exalting God. Because uh, there are certain ways that we can do it, whether we're trying to... You're not trying to exalt yourself or anything like that, but because of your uh, because of your actions, it happens to not bring the attention to God rather to yourself. So I guess we have to be um, still somewhat concerned about that as well. Perhaps, but I think sincerity goes a long way. Right. Great. And I, I think we need to be concerned about that, but not let that keep us from doing what we need to be here. You know, not let uh, fear of you know uh, offending somebody or not being politically correct stop us from saying what needs to be said. Logan? When we talk about all these things, being worried about how we're going to make an influence on people and how they'll see us as Christians. You know, like you said, Jesus was accused of several things that were not true. Not only that, when those things were brought before him, he didn't say a word. 
And so I think we ought to take from that example that people are going to think what they're going to think. We should just do our best to follow God, despite what people think, and let the effect that uh, let it take the effect that it's going to. Because some people are going to accept it, and some are going to reject it, and we can't make that decision for them. That would be the way out. It's a good statement. My, my. And if Isaiah was scared of standing out, he wouldn't have gotten his method done. So I mean, uh, I think we're just scared of being different when we shout. You know, we're different. We're different than the white people. We're different than the people that aren't inside. And again, we need to be sincere. If I am doing what I'm doing to draw attention to myself, if that's my purpose, if this is an act, then I shouldn't. It's not my act. I need to be sincere. I need to be somebody who is praising God from my heart, who's talking about the Lord because I really respect Him and I'm impressed with Him. If, if I am doing anything to try to impress others or to try to exalt myself or because I want attention, that's wrong even if it doesn't have a bad impact on me. So I think really being sincere and genuine and being what God wants us to be, to me that's the key. Jesus taught that all the time to the Pharisees. If you preach out on the street corner and draw attention to yourself, congratulations, you got your reward. That's exactly what you wanted, that's what you're going to get. Exactly. Good passage. Coming to what you're saying, um, Philippians 2 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So, if you have those selfish or empty conceitful motives, you know, just flush those out and make yourself, I guess, do it from a sincere motive. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and why you should be doing it, I guess. Good. Alright. Well, I think it would be good for us to take a break for about 15 minutes or so. And uh, you can turn verse divisions, of course, and put into the Bible by man. And uh, when you're a prophet, you've got a number of things that you need to teach. You need to be balanced. You wouldn't think a preacher had done the right thing if all he preached was held by a brimstone. Or all he preached was the grace and mercy of God. Or whatever. You need balance. And he's just been talking about the great blessings that God will give his people. But there's another side to that. So, chapter 42, verses 18 to 25. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I sent? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord is pleased for his righteousness' sake, to make the law great and glorious. For this is a people plundered and spoiled. All of them are trapped in caves, or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up the spoil and Israel the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, and in, who, and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Well, we're looking at a servant here, a messenger, and what's this servant like? He's deaf. Deaf and blind. Whoa. What about a messenger who's deaf? <laughs> Do you see a problem? <laughs> Well, we've been looking at the servant, but we didn't read about a deaf servant. This blind and deaf servant, who's that? 
I think God's people who, you know, this blindness and deafness is an odd thing because uh, they see many things in verse 20. Their ears are open. You know, so that like they have the equipment. You know, it's not like they're born with no ears or without a, you know, auditory nerve or, you know, anything like that. They've got all of what it takes physically to be able to hear and see. And, you know, in verse 21, the Lord made the law great and glorious. So they had the data God provided to see and know Him and His will. But they didn't. You know, there are people who are willfully ignorant, who are choosing not to see and not to hear. And it's a pretty awful thing to have called a messenger that you've got uh, that you need to, to deliver a message and you find out it doesn't hear anything. That's the way God's people work. Can you imagine the disappointment God does with a people like this, a servant that really is useless? Comments or questions through 22? Well, what do you do in a case like this if you're God? They don't listen. Verse 23. So God gave Jacob up for spoil and to plunderers. You know, that wasn't, you know, the Babylonian captivity. This was not a politically determined event. It was not a militarily determined event. This was God. They sinned against God. They they refused to walk in His ways. They wouldn't obey His law. So what did He do? He poured out the heat of His anger and the fierceness of battle and burned them up. The thing that determines what will happen is the Lord and our relationship to Him. And it wasn't just to be back if this was the case, but it wasn't just that Israel did not walk in the way of God. It was that Israel they did not just that they didn't walk in the way of God, but they didn't They won't want to. They didn't want to. Sometimes we want to do well, we don't end up doing it. They didn't want to. That that was against their will and their choice. They they didn't want God's will to be done. So what can God do but give them up to the plunderers, Nebuchadnezzar, and to burn them up? And they're in the middle of the flames, and what do you see in the end of the chapter? Didn't change anything. Still pay no attention. <laughs> Some people think, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could just have a lot of fun in my whole life, and on my deathbed, I know just an hour before I die so I can turn back to God. Well, that's a whole misconception for all sorts of ways, but that's not going to happen. Almost never happens. You didn't think it would. You think they would try it anyway. Even in sincerity, generally they don't. I mean, you spend your whole life not willing to walk in God's way. And you don't want to repent, not even on your deathbed. I mean, you grow hardened, you grow dumb, you grow blind and deaf. They're being burned at the stake. They still don't even, not even aware of their situation. That's the reality God faced with this blind and deaf servant. Comments and questions? What? Kind of reminds me of Revelation when those angels start pouring out all the wrath and uh, the trumpets and all the woes and things 
like that. And uh, even though all these men started suffering and burning and things like that, they still did not repent. Exactly. And blaspheme God, no less, in some of those. Great. Oh, I guess I'm not exactly sure how this connects with what we've been reading earlier. Like before, he's been comforting them, telling them, you know, what he's going to do, and now he's going back to uh, the immediate situation. Yeah, yeah. He is. He's he's been looking forward. He's been looking at the blessings and the comfort, but he comes back to the reality of of the servant that that's there right now, and you know, it's not a pretty picture. So this isn't talking to those people part now, this is talking to people now. I think primarily talking to people now, although we'll see that even later on, it will only be a remnant that will be blessed. JP. Um, Gary Kerr made an interesting point in uh, one of his lessons where he said that a lot of times as Christians we feel that if uh, we live our lives correctly. Yeah, we're expected to stumble, but we can stumble. As, it goes along with that you're saying that we, can, we believe we can stumble as much as we want, and that God, being such a merciful and heavenly God, and kind and sturdy, um, peaceful God will just forgive us no matter what, and we'll just free ride to heaven. And the truth is that He's going to be just with us if we're trying to live a life for joy and pleasure then we're going to get the consequences of that in return. It's not, yeah, God will be there to have mercy, God will be there to forgive us of our sins, but at the same time, we have to serve Him because we call Him Lord. We have to be willing to give our lives at all costs, and we can't just expect that because we proclaim to be Christians at one point that we're automatically going to be granted heaven. Certainly. No doubt. Other thoughts? What's the point of 22? Uh, they hear people loot and plunder, uh, spoil. I think it's the picture of them being buffeted and, and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. I mean, they're getting what's coming to them and they're still not listening. Shane. There's a feeling in my life sometimes when I not seem to be as focused on what we're to be. There's times that I feel that I don't want the Lord's will to be done, that I don't want to study, I don't want to pray, um, kind of push the Lord away. Yeah. What do you do in those situations when you feel so far from the Lord that you don't even feel like doing anything? Good question. Um, what did Jesus do when he didn't feel like drinking the cup? Drank the cup. <laughs> and what did he do before that? Prayed. Yeah, he turned to God in prayer. That was not an easy night of prayer. This was a struggling prayer for him. And, and, and wrestled with that to the point of saying, Thy will be done. Um, we, we turn to the Lord and we submit our will to his will even when we don't feel it. That's a challenge. And I think it was a challenge for Jesus in some senses. Uh, certainly the text indicates he was struggling greatly with that. But he chose to submit it. Kelly? Did his flesh serve? Did his flesh serve God's purpose? Yeah. Paul said he buffeted his body daily. Tim. I think you may have to answer the question earlier, but I can't really hear you. Um, this section here is, you know, before you're saying he's projecting forward to the, to the path of the battle and captivity. Is this, is he, this section, is he not projecting forward? Yeah, I, I think I, I, that's, that would be my best take on some of these sections. That he's giving comfort to the exiles, but at times he's reverting back to you know, the reality of the people he is actually among. Could it be that, I mean, if this were to be read by someone in captivity, 
not all of those in captivity are righteous and with the right attitudes, then the righteous remnant in captivity would be uh, some God wants to comfort and bless. But I mean, the people who come to Ezekiel aren't all righteous. Definitely. I mean, I think there's something to that as well. Well, you know, it's interesting how Israel is. You know, and we just alluded to that. You know, you've got the remnant and you've got the rebellious mass. So we're just looking at this picture at the end of 42. The flames all around are being burned up by God's anger. But now, chapter 43. 